This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 321 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to bring a man on the show who has been recommended over and over and over again by a diverse group of men and women that have been on this podcast and that man is Tate Fletcher. Now, Tate has a history in MMA. He competed in the Ultimate Fighter. Then he transitioned into stunts and has been a very successful stunt performer and is now going into writing and producing and acting in films. But he's also an incredible human being to get a perspective on many of the issues that we've been through as a culture the last few months. So this was a fascinating discussion. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The more ratings we get, especially five-star, the more visible this podcast is to people looking for a project like this. And then take this incredible free library of content that we have and share it. The more you share, the more the men and women's stories and philosophies can help people on planet Earth. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tate Fletcher. Enjoy. Tate, I want to start by saying thank you so much um, for taking the time and, and <laughs> changing your plans very quickly to make this happen and come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Man, I've been I've been looking forward to it for uh, since you asked me, and then you know we've had the revolution since then, so there's been just so much going on. It's uh, for me, it's it's really been good for my mental health to be able to talk to guys like you. And, and just kind of download what's going on so we can understand the, the mishmash a little better so I can go, here's what I'm seeing and because we're in, a, in, in flux right now, I'll say. So I'm real grateful to be here as well. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I, I agree 100%. I started this podcast a uh, little shy of four, four years ago now and 
what I've been, you know, the discussions I've had with COVID and then with this, um, not that that's been the theme because there's more to life than those, you know, blips, but you're able to have a discussion without being interrupted and you're able to listen intently to someone else's response rather than just fling shit at each other. Yeah, it's been vital to me uh, to have standards for myself in the amount of communication that I'm going to endeavor with somebody. And one of those standards is respect the content of your conversation enough to give it a boundary of space that you can really um, delve into it and, and, and suss it out with somebody with an open mind because these things, when I see something on the internet or, you know, there's a trigger that's like, I want to respond. I, it's so hard to be articulate in those times and really let people exactly understand what you're saying, you know, and if our intent is to be heard and to be acknowledged, we must be clear and succinct. And these formats are, are some of the only formats I think that we, uh, that it's built in that we demand that here really. Absolutely. For those looking for truth, yeah. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, then where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Los Angeles, California. I'm in Venice. And um, I uh, I may be traveling here, I think, tomorrow to go back to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, I'm going to just ride it out there. I've got a writing partner out there. And we've got a couple projects coming up. So I'll probably just be in the, in the lower Rocky Mountains there in Santa Fe. And... Um, ride it out there and see what happens unless something happens in the country. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if uh, there's going to be a, a show of support. If there was a, a, a unity stand in DC or some, something, I would go, I would, I want to participate in my country. I want to participate in, in the voices of the, of the oppressed, of the, the dominating of, of all the different, I, I want to be able to know what's going on here because what I do notice that, I mean, even it, it, I've noticed a lot over the course of my life, but even just if we take since like Operation Wall Street or uh, you talk about the, the Women's March, perhaps the, the minute after the minute Women's March is over, everybody's making fun of hats and 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 oh, it's a man hating agenda or it's a Trump hating agenda. And, and I went, <laughs> you know, to in a couple different cities and it wasn't like that. It was like an honoring of the earth and. You know, there's not a lot of women senators and, and you guys are all bitching about that, but none of you also are throwing your name in the hat to get into your local government or your state government or anything like that. And so we've got the lowest amount of people interested in that also, and we can make a difference there. So it's just trying to empower people in different ways. And I thought, dope. And then I heard, hear what mainstream media does with that about what it is. And it's like, man, that wasn't it at all. And so if I want to bring harmony, I want to know the truth of what's rippling on the water. I can't hear it through the echoes of mainstream media. I have to be a participant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, today, ironically, is the anniversary of Tiananmen Square massacre. And that's a yeah. perfect example of people banding together and standing up against totally. a, a machine. Totally. 100%. It's interesting, too, you know, in my vision, because I'm, I'm American and American born and, and, um, what I know about China, I know about Tiananmen Square, right? Basically, or I know about Chairman Mao. I know about a hundred million dead. I know about, you know, uh, killing children so they don't overpopulate. I know about all that. Uh, and I feel like there's this dark communist regime, right? And that's what Chinese, like, that's what that is. And then I got the chance to go to China and I'll, this is like New York city. I mean, I was in Singapore and it was, uh, 
or uh, Shanghai rather. And, uh, it was beautiful, but, um, there's everybody just loving their families, trying to take care of their kids. It's, it's America, man. Um, I, I mean, except for the structure of the government. But my point is, is that there's not tanks in the streets. There's not, I have this dystopia about certain places that the news puts on me, you know, that I've got to just question things and, and go and see. And I'm really grateful that I've been able to have a explorative experience in this life and, and think about things from different positions. Cause a lot of the stuff that I used to really think about, um, turned out I was incorrect. And so then I got to keep an open mind because that means that what I'm thinking about real strongly right now, I could be incorrect here also. I just, I just want to play it loose and I want to search strongly for truth with a high standard and, and, um, and, and look to those ends. Cause I think that's the only place we have functional sustainability is if we have that, that truth and that balance, you know, and right now the truth is really at, at war. It's at a disadvantage, right? They call it the post truth era. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's, that's exactly it. What I saw, and I think we have a lot of mutual friends and we'll talk about, you know, where our paths kind of cross through them. Um, but when this first happened, when George Floyd was first murdered, I saw just for a moment an incredible unity of all the, you know, the men and women that, that are, you know, that I interact with that are special operations soldiers and high performing athletes and firefighters and police officers all standing side by side saying, this is wrong. And yep. then that got snuffed out by the yep. sensationalism, which then resulted in this violence. And, you know, and that, that whole dialogue was lost. And I think that's the China that you're talking about. That's all these other, you know, false narratives that, that we're sold. And, and the reality is the middle 80% are looking left and right and going, what the fuck are you talking about? Totally. Totally. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? Like, you know, you can easily grow up in America white and not really understand how different the odds are for you. If you grew up in the projects as a black person, you know, you, the odds are that you'll be, I think it's like, is it one in 15 or 30 white men go to prison? And it's like one, one in three or something like that. Black men. That's, that's insanity. That's a structure that's built towards pushing black people into prison. Like if we, but, but, and that's, that's a fact. You look at the 13th amendment, you look at, I mean, the way our country was built, we were, we were built and raised upon, uh, upon the backs of slaves, upon white supremacy. And, and then that got written into our constitution with the 13th amendment to, uh, to push that, that agenda of, of domination into the future. And, and it echoes into today. I mean, anybody that wants to look around can see it. And I know a lot of people are trying not to see it. And that's part of the problem, right? Is that we can't even, well, why is it difficult to even acknowledge somebody's pain? Is your own unresolved trauma so white hot that you can't allow anybody else to have some pain because that would take away from yours or what are we talking about? Cause my bottom, bottom line with all of this as far as equality goes is that you know, and, and I, I don't want to not talk about the American Indian who also has had a horrific existence, especially the, the kind of domination by the state against the, the, the male American Indian is, uh, it's ghastly every bit as much as, um, the, the black experience in America. And, but w with, with those kinds of things, if we can, if we can bring that, 
a level of equality there. If we can root out any white supremacy that exists, whether it's in police departments or fire departments or schools or Hollywood or wherever the fuck it comes up, everybody gets better. Like, like having, you know, when he talked about the baseline of black lives matter, they just would like to matter just, just to exist. Can black lives exist even like, what are we talking about that somebody is disgruntled about hearing? It seems like an insanity to me. And why are you insecure that somebody else being equal will diminish you? I don't, I just don't get it. And so I want to take away the idea that there's a threat anywhere. There's no threat in everybody having equality. There's not a threat to somebody in that. It only enhances us. Absolutely. And you mentioned the 13th Amendment, and I think that's, uh, that's an important thing for people to be aware of how, you know, the, the prisons in some, alleys you know some roots were ultimately taken the place of slavery and and something i've talked about very recently a lot is drug prohibition how that was founded on you know com- extreme racism and how this war on drugs has been a catastrophic failure that has ended up um putting 600 percent more people you know men women of all colors and creeds but obviously a large you know portion of minorities behind bars that are making yeah. companies billions and billions of dollars. So it's it's a hate thing. It was a hate towards the Irish in our past. It was hate towards the Chinese in our past. So, you know, yep. I think that's when we we got to get to the root that don't be so defensive because they're attacking your pigmentation or whatever. We got to look at the systemic culture of hate that goes towards basically anyone who's not wanted to be holding that that wheel of power. Totally. And, and I think it's just, I mean, you know, in the macro, the, the micro echoes, like we see the same thing in larger scale that we see in smaller scale. And you look at like the destabilization of the Middle East, uh, Arab Spring that, that was just kind of enacted over the last 15 years or so, um, since nine 11. And that's just to destabilize all of this area so that economically globally they can never fuck with us right they're just going to be at war forever and so that makes us be able to pay attention to other things it's basically like dominating this area without having to do anything we're just going to leave them fighting there we we fucked it up so badly when we attacked that it's over right and that was a constructed effort that was a concerted effort so i look at i look at this i I look at covid and i thought early on i thought is this uh, uh, American, European, I mean, I understand it's a global thing, but look at how it's destabilized the world and the U.S. and Europe in particularly. I mean, 30 million, we're not allowed to work anymore. We're not allowed to go to work in America. All this is happening. I mean, and people start really getting loud about it. And then, dude, the guy stares in a camera for eight minutes getting filmed. It's all, like, I'm like, are, are you paid to do that to distract me from how they're not letting me? What are we doing right now? What the fuck is going on? It's perplexing, dude. The the levels and and then the opportunists of whoever has huge agendas, and you know I don't know. All my conspiracy friends are like it's George Soros, or it's, I, I don't know any of that. But all I know is it feels and it's felt like since COVID that I'm under attack. And I knew when COVID happened, one thing as a fighter is that this is just the opening round. They're jostling us about, throwing some jabs, seeing how we react. But this is going to be a long battle. And so when people think about disrupting black and white relations in America, think about the Mideast. 
Think about Arab Spring. Think about destabilization in prisons and that we do that and it makes it easier to contend with people if everybody's fighting. So I would think that that would give anybody a great amount of uh, impetus to question the state's agenda and to look towards unity. And when they saw divisiveness to maybe look, how can I consider somebody else's point of view? I mean, look, if we're all on a basketball court and we're all, we all have, we're all shooting at the same goal because everybody, a lot of the people that are divisive right now, they're actually there. Nobody's saying anything differently. They're, they're, they, they all want equality. People want justice more than not, you know? And, and, so what, what, where, where are the obstacles coming from and why are they so grand that we can't, it's just this little petty shit. That's all media driven. And so anytime I see that divisiveness, I go, I've just got to look for the perspective because if we're all on a basketball court and we're all going for the same shot, which is equality or justice, I don't know what your shot looks like. Maybe you only got a couple shots from there. And when I stood on the front lines of the riots the other day at the Grove downtown LA here in Hollywood, um, crazy cop cars, the whole thing, it was fucking nuts. And, and the whole thing is also, here's these guys, this is their shot. The cop is there. They're in a horrible position. They don't want to be there mostly. And they've got to be there to do this. It's like, I fucking God bless those people. Good God. You know, You, you see the, the, the fear, the trepidation, the, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm here behind those shields. You know, it was daytime when I was there still. And, uh, and, and you see the guys that are instigators and they think this is their shot. And then you see people that are just wanting to witness this like me and, and, and what their shot is. And everybody's got a different position. And it's just important that before I castigate you for yours, that I can understand from where your position comes from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I see that even with COVID. So right when we first came out, there was a lot of hero worshiping. Oh, you know, the doctors and nurses and, and firefighters and medics and police officers, you're, you're our heroes. And, but then that quickly shifted, you know, law enforcement got, you know, the shaft yet again, because then they're like, Oh, actually, you know what? Can you go and enforce all these curfews for us? Even, even though our state has seen barely no COVID deaths whatsoever, we're just going to force everyone in rural Idaho <laughs> to stay in their, their houses it's, because it's New York. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah. So now they're the bad guys again. And I'm, like I said, I'm a firefighter myself. I'm so proud to, to stand side by side along most law enforcement men and women. Of course, there are shitty ones. There are shitty firefighters. There are shitty medics. But, um, but now they're the scapegoats yet again of someone else's policy. There's, there's a puppet yeah. master, you know, and they're yep. saying, all right, go throw your, you know, your Star Wars gear on and go stand in front of these, these people. And make things even fucking worse. And, and like you said, those men and women, 95% of them are not looking to grab something heavy and start wailing on men and women from their own communities. No. And, and, and then there's, you know, then we see plenty that are. See a guy that he's not eight feet away from the guy that he's just been sprayed with mace and then he turns around and another cop shoots him in the face with a, tear gas container like eight feet away like it's it's insane out there right people are doing crazy shit you see these little kids get shot in the head with rubber bullets little 14 year old kids like just they're shooting at reporters so now that now it's dangerous to be a reporter like that's incredible right our own state is turning against our press 
which is the thing that tells us all it's an, a, a police officer is a citizen. I just don't understand. It's got to be a, a, a break in the psyche at some point when you start going, Jesus Christ, what master am I serving? We're all brothers here. What am I doing? And, and then there's, there's the groups of assholes that are out there that are fucking burning shit down and fucking robbing people. Jesus Christ, man. It's, you know, and, and, and then the, the sadness of that is they, they make it so that everybody else that's, that's, you know, just demanding justice for fuck's sake. I'm not here to take it at gunpoint. We're just here to say, hey, we want to be recognized, whatever. And then they're, they're, they're taking that and hijacking it and just taking it into terrorism. It's like, ugh. And you talk about, I mean, one of my friends at uh, 10th Planet down in, uh, in Long Beach just lost his whole gym, lit him on fire. He stood outside bravely, he and a few of his buddies, all day, getting taunted, people rushing at him, like almost in some horrible squabs. And then at the end of the day, somebody throws a Molotov cocktail through the tie-in suit shop that was adjacent, and it burnt the whole block out. Well, that was a, a police officer, a captain, a retired police officer, Captain David Dorn, who, you know, happened to be African American, who was shot point blank trying to protect his friend's porn stop, short, excuse me, porn store, um, in, uh, I forget which town it was now, but just, just murdered. And it was live streamed as well. So this is a black Crazy. man who's a retired police officer, served his community the whole time, and he was murdered in cold blood by a rioter. So yeah, again, that narrative is, the middle ground stand up and go, this is wrong. We want peace. We want, you know, love. And they're like, right. ah, we can't have that. So let's, you know, f throw fuel on the fire of hate and then get a few of the shitbags from the other side to start doing horrendous things. And then yep. you get the whole, I told you so, going back and forth. Yep. Yep. And, I, you know, it was interesting, too, that I could see. You could see, I mean, on different escalations of combat, there's different things that are appropriate, right? I, I kind of wish that our forces could come out without the bats and the armor and just be like, hold a line and be like, you know, please like protest here and don't do whatever they've got to do for their, their restrictions, but, but make it like a parade. We have, we close down for marathons and shit all the time or for an AIDS walk and nobody has to get beaten up. Like, how about that? We could start there, right? You don't come out and riot gear for, for the, for the bicycle day or whatever, when everybody is on their bike, bicycle via or whatever it's called. They don't, they don't do that. Like meet the people as people first, not as combatants because it's not necessary yet. But then also at the same time, I see these guys with the clubs and, and, uh, and that spear at the crowd and it looks vicious, right? But I'm like, you know what? That's a violence I understand. That's a violence that's keeping much greater violence from occurring in the future. Like you have to hold a line and you have to, you, people have to know that you're, that's where your line is, you know, and, um, and the importance of that and, and the toughness of that, you know, to be able to, to have to do that to us citizens. I mean, the whole thing, man, uh, I, I don't, where, when do you think for a solution, where do, where do you look towards? Honestly, I mean, I personally think that we need to look towards the leaders that, you know, are pursuing peace and it sounds all hippy dippy, but it's true. Like, Meeting violence with violence, meeting hate with hate has clearly not worked. I mean, we, we can look back over the history of mankind to see that that hasn't worked. But you look at the Martin Luther Kings, the Mahatma Gandhi, some of these, these men and women that have, you know, inspired either completely reversed a lot of, um, you know, hatred, hatred and, and violence or 
have created a culture where that wasn't even a thing. I mean, there's so many countries, we forget this. There's so many countries on planet Earth that don't have these problems. They don't murder each other every day. They don't all have to carry weapons. So why are we not looking to some of those leaders and and starting to, to kind of figure out what is it that you do in Norway, in Sweden, in, you know, wherever, where you are known to have very little violence and, and a lot more overall happiness? Because we certainly have the resources. We're the most affluent nations on the planet. So what we need to do is have the humility to start learning from countries that do it well and then demanding leadership from people that exhibit compassion and kindness rather than just throw fuel on the fire of hatred and greed. Mm. Yeah. You know what? I I wish that equality and, and justice had as good a PR agent as COVID had. Yeah, because we would be there then, right? Like it would just you'd be on board. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone did what they were told during this, and there were a few outliers again. But most of us, whether we agreed it was gonna do what they told us it was or not, we still did our part and we sheltered in place and you know followed the rules. So imagine if we'd done that with love and kindness. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, and, and and then I think the way they do it. Right. And for a long time, if you watch, like there's a great documentary, on, uh, I think it's on Netflix called They've Got to Have Us, which is kind of a history of uh, black performers, directors, black participation in, in film and entertainment from the uh, as a historical perspective. And um, super interesting, man. Be, I mean, when you look at it and, and you say, OK, well, or you look at marijuana, the same thing. They did like, a, you know, a PR scam that. Uh, every, all the Mexicans are going to rape white women if they smoke marijuana or something like that, right? There was a huge thing, the reefer madness, all those kinds of propaganda films. And, and, and it's the same thing, you know, it's like when you look about equity in film or in, in, in uh, media, it's like there's not. There's not an equal representation of all people living all different walks of lives because there's restrictive thing. I mean, from redlining school districts, there's a lot of restrictions around that have made it this way that, I'm not smart enough to go into all of them right now, but uh, but they're out there. We've been built this way, you know, and and I think that's one of the big problems. I really wonder about America and what it would look like if somebody overtook the media. Uh, you know, we've got the same three people or whatever that control all the media that we see. And that's an insanity, man. We're looking at that cave wall. We're looking at those reflections. We don't know what other countries are doing. That's insane. No, it is. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to walk you through your own life because you have such a, a unique perspective through the journey that you've taken. Um, so where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? What, what do your parents do and how many siblings? Uh, I've got a, my sister's two years older and she lives in Alaska and uh, she's a chef um, and a real outdoorsy type. And so she fell in love with she went up there. She just drove up to go visit friends once, and then she never left. So she's been there for a while. We, I was, uh, we were both born in Alpena, Michigan, and uh, was born and raised there and lived in Michigan until I was probably um, 19, I think, maybe, 20, maybe. Um, and then I went to New Mexico from there and uh, went to school and kind of fell in love with the Southwest. Brilliant. And what did your parents do? Career-wise, uh, well, they they 
they were divorced, I guess, I don't know, when I was maybe 27 or something like that. No, maybe I was maybe 23. I don't know. I don't remember when it was exactly. But um, my dad, he uh, runs, uh, he works at a utility company and um, did that. And then he retired. And he is in Florida part of the time. And then he goes back to Michigan and uh, spends time sailing and, and uh, on the Great Lakes or little inland lakes and hunting. And then goes back to Florida for the cold parts. And my mama lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, about a mile away from my house. Brilliant. Whereabouts in Florida does your dad live? I don't know. He just moved there like a year and a half ago, and I'm not really sure. <laughs> All right, because I'm in Florida myself. So is that right? All right. Well, then, um, what about athletics? Um, when did you get into martial arts? Were you a young man? Was it later in life? You know, my martial arts when I was younger was like if you had a, a pair of boxing gloves, you and your friend, you'd each have a pair, have one glove on, and you would, uh, you know, only hit with that hand. And you would, that was, that was when I was a kid. I, there was no formal training I'd had until I was, um, I don't know, in my early 20s, I guess. Everything was just from street fights and from, you know, learning how to dominate from those interactions. Or, you know, trying to, seeing what works in real time, you know, just the way kids learn to fight, I suppose. But uh, I played I played hockey also, which I guess probably helped, um, helped in that because there's a, a lot of physical contact there. But, yeah, that was it, hockey. And, uh, and then I didn't wrestle or do any of that until I was in my 20s. Right. Now, career aspirations, when you were high school age, what were you wanting to be one day? I didn't have any. I didn't really see a whole lot of hope. Uh, in, in any of those kinds, I, I thought, you know, I don't know, it would have been cool to have been uh, like going to writing, I think, or something. But as far as like what I, uh, you know, I was not employable. Um, you know, I was a, I just sold drugs and um, was a criminal for a long time and until my early 20s, I guess. Uh, you know, but just like getting by stuff, you know, it was like not, not like set out to be, you know, whatever, but it's just like, you know, a little money here. This guy's older brother asked you kids to go and do a favor and go into this house over here, you know, stuff like that. Right, so how did you find your way in that? Because obviously, you know, we're going to talk about you know, your, the amazing journey you found with uh, Greg Jackson and from there. But how did you find yourself into that profession? And tell me some of the, you know, the the uh, incidents that led you, you know, to, to being behind bars and getting the perspective from that side. Oh man, it was just kind of an old life catching up with me is what that final clink was. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, just with a, a buddy that was doing his thing, you know, and everybody gets clipped when that happens. And then it was, you know, anyway, uh, yeah, is is a thing, you know, you're looking at 25 years or whatever, um, for bank robbery. That's to catch up listeners, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I got, I got, uh, that was when I was in my early 20s, right? I was 22, 23 years old and got clipped on this bank robbery that I was I was with a guy directly after he robbed a bank. And so we both got picked up. And um, anyway, at the end of that whole thing, he, he did nine years out of it, uh, you know, cop to the whole thing. And um, and I got let free is it was a, a, you know, an arcing change in my life, like uh, as far as you know, this is going to, how, how this is going to end up. It's either going to end up like this or it's going to end up like that. And so it was, a, it was the, you know, a real final mark in me 
turning my life um, from drugs and alcohol and getting sober and looking for a, you know, a different solution to my life. Like maybe supposing that my life wasn't predicted that I was going to end up on welfare or in prison or something like that. And then maybe I could have a chance at something else. And I just run into some guys that had helped me open my eyes to a perspective like that, a, a possibility, maybe a, maybe a glimmer of hope and, uh, and started walking the way they started directing me and cleaning my life up and, and looking about, you know, how, how you would be a citizen if you could be such a thing. Cause I was really not, you know? And, um, and in that it led me to, I, I needed a physical expression. I was going crazy. And so I just, uh, started out, worked out with these kickboxers and, uh, I thought whatever, you know, I'd, I'd run into a lot of karate places and shit like that where it's like, man, a, 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 a tough guy or a wrestler whoops everybody in this room, like with all the black belts and all the, you know, pretend Kung Fu that people were selling back then. And so I just wasn't impressed. And then I met this guy that was a stick fighter named Arlen Sanford. And Arlen was a founding member of a group called the Dog Brothers uh, Mixed Martial Arts Club. And they banged out with sticks. And Arlen's fought guys with chains, with bats, with uh, nunchucks, with bow staffs, like um, all types of weapons against him and his stick. You know, he's pretty confident. So he was my teacher. And, um, you know, they, they have a great motto that says higher consciousness through harder contact, which, uh, I really subscribe to. And I, I like that a lot. And Arlen was a guy that taught about power. He said, always lead with power, Tate. And, um, which I think is great advice. And he said, you know, a lot of these guys, they get so into the artsy way of it. They forget the martial aspects. And he says it happens. It gets watered down over generations. You know, if you're not at war you don't practice the martial aspect as much and maybe you throw a twirl in or it looks a little more beautiful for a performance that you give or something like that. But it, it's efficacy fades a little bit. And he said, so when we started the dog brothers, me and Eric Knaus, we fought, we took a first and second in this international stick fighting competition. And that wasn't enough because we were so heavily armored. We didn't think it would be realistic to think, you know, he could have walked through this backhand that I put on his head at one point. And so he offered to come over to the house and uh, we fought for the weekend and knocked each other out a couple of times, broke a finger. But we just fought clean with just batting gloves on and a face mask uh, to cover your eyes. Um, and that was it. And that's kind of where the dog brothers were born. And from then on the equinoxes, guys get together for a gathering, which uh, – it's like, you know, 25, 30 fighters or so and three or 400 people spectating. I haven't been to one in a long time, but this is what it was back then. And that's what got me into it. Long story. We crashed, you know, in, in fights like that. You find if you go to the ground, you're lost if you don't know jiu-jitsu, wrestling, something like that. So that got me interested in jiu-jitsu. And then I met a guy named Alberto Crane who'd been living in Brazil for a while back in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Arlen introduced me to him. And uh, I just fell in love with grappling. And started competing and, and doing that all over the world. And, uh, and that was, that was awesome. And then cage fighting, I started seeing this come around and I've been watching on VHS tapes, the, the UFCs, all of them, you know, and huge fan. And, uh, back in the Zuffa days and, um, or the SEG and all that, you know, it, it was, um, it was a brand new expression. And then the, the fights that, they got into with boxing and watching anything, any new entity 
beg to matter is a is a, is a trip kind of UFC was like that. So anyway, I got I, and then I started seeing these cage fights, and then like King of the Cage and stuff like that was coming up, and I was like, fuck, I want to I want to participate in that, and I was like, yeah, was when you get a purple belt. You, you know, you can fight. And so then I started practicing more stand-up of uh, Muay Thai and stuff with Arlen. And Jason Cordova is a real good kickboxer. And that, that's around the time I met Keith Jardine and Greg Jackson and all those guys. I met them through Arlen. And um, and that kind of began the journey. Well, it's interesting because I had Greg on the show only three or four months ago, I think. And wow, he's a great man, isn't he? Yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. But he um, was talking, and I've, I've discussed this with a couple of guests as well, about the some people in the gym. I hope you said. I hope you said how important I was to his life. Oh, he did. That was all we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but but there was an element of that. So we discussed like you know some of the the history of some of the the men and women that walk through the doors and how if there was that martial arts element, even though you're you know creating fires and like you said you're not creating you know wushu champions. Um, right. If there was a complete abandonment of the martial way, that martial element, that you ended up just being a fighter, but it was the martial arts, martial artists, the ones that kind of understood that side as well, that seemed to thrive overall as humans. Yeah, I think there's a curiosity in the martial arts, right? And if you can continue your curiosity, uh, and I think that curiosity is limited only if you think that you know everything. Um, if you think I'm a black belt and I've arrived, then you just fucked yourself. You know, that's not the point, dummy. Um, it's this, it's this, it's this eagerness to learn. You know, one of my teachers taught me that a lot. He goes, man, he goes, what humility is, is just being teachable, Tate. Remain teachable. It'll enhance your life in every way. And, and that, that seems to be true everywhere, right? As long as we can remain curious and as martial artists, that curiosity to always get better, always hone a technique, always, how can I adapt my body to this endeavor that I'm about to go partake upon? Um, all that stuff. I think when you move away or you get different interests, you get curious in those other things and, and those things then you adapt to because you, it's like, it's the idea of knowing how to fall in love with your life. Maybe, maybe it's something like that. Like, and once I, once I go, okay, whatever I'm doing, uh, I want to be in love with that thing. Meaning I want to be able to interact with it in a way where it elicits the most from me and I from it, where we have the, a fullness of that relationship. Right. And, and that's what fighting was for me for sure. And, and then that's what film work became. And that's what having this coffee company was like. I mean, it's just all those things. I'm like, I just want to, I want to live a life, a passion, uh, the direction wasn't super important to me, I guess. I, I, I want to do things that made me better, that were very difficult and that would make me better. I guess that's what I always kind of endeavored for. Yeah, and I think that philosophy is so important. It is in, in my profession. I mean, we want as policemen, firefighters, you know, uh, tactical athletes, we want to be better physically, but we want to be better with our skills. You know, you want that police officer in an ideal world God forbid they have to arrest one of your family members to be, mm -hmm. you know, well practiced in jujitsu, to use minimal force, to either use their voice or at least, you know, a very, a very, um, limited amount of force to get them in cuffs safely and then, you know, take them to wherever, wherever they need to go for whatever the reason that they were being detained. But if we are not getting better as a human being, as a first responder or as a member of society, and like you said, having the humility to want to learn to get past 
all white people are evil, all cops are murderers, all black people are, you know, criminals, these ridiculous labels that we've stuck on each other. That martial element is very important for us to grow as a society as well. Yeah, totally. And 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 those labels, I want to point out that they're they're largely tricks. Um I was thinking about it the other day and I was thinking about, you know, um that show that like Wake goes on right now. And um that Randy Weaver, there was the first time I ever heard the word. This was back in the 90s when it was going on. They started labeling this guy a, a white separatist. And I was like, what the what the hell is that? Like I had no idea. I'd never heard the term before. I'd heard white supremacist. Uh, I'd heard segregationist. I, you know, but white separatist, it wasn't a term before. It was something that the, the press just came up and wanted to call a guy that was like an ex-ranger or something from North Carolina. And when he ended his career, he just wanted to live in the in the woods with his family. And then they came up and killed his family, right? Um that, and and so when you hear these words and then they start to vilify then all the militias after that you know Waco happened they burned those people up and then they went to war on all the militias and then the the thing with Oklahoma City happened and then at that point if you were a militia what the PR had done to you you were a racist violent you were uh, against the state and pro anarchy and none of that shit was what any of that stuff was and then I fast forward to uh charleston and i i i start hearing antifa well what the fuck is antifa anti-fascist fuck that seems good i'm anti-fascists i don't like that well and and that was the people that got ran over with the car there right to correct my thinking i'm pretty sure that's the antifa uh as they were called and then there were the tiki torch guys but then that name got co-opted by a bunch of shitheads in Oakland that adopted the name Antifa, wore all black, were highly violent and shitty fucking assholes. And so then there's that. And and but I want I just I want to bring the idea that the media that I'm talking about, CNN and all of it, everybody, they're owned by the same three four guys. And this is media. This is a show that they're showing us. Antifa is a character in the show. Black Lives Matter is a character in the show. The, the protesters are a character in the show. These are all characters that they contrive. And so be careful with your labels because you might question why. I, I first started looking at it with the with left, left and liberal and all that. And liberal became synonymous with you're a weakling and uh, all that. Well, it used to mean free thinker. And so the press hijacked that too. This media is, it's a tricky fucking devil, you know? Yeah. Well, and if you go far enough back, you know, there were times where, where things were done under Republican you know, flag that were horrendous. And there were things that were done under, you know, liberal flag that were horrendous. So again, they, it's, you're, you're detracting blue and red or, you know, whatever pink with polka dot spots. You know, right. you, you're, it, it it's name. all bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's either hate or, or love. And I think the perfect example of extremism that I remember from years ago was the, the, um, animal rights activists that would then blow up a lab full of animals. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's exactly what we're seeing now. Yeah. yeah. We're ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at the human show, we are, if you could, if you could get distance from it, it'd be like, this is the most tragic comedy I ever saw. We're fucking living Tiger King right now is what's going on. Oh, boy. 
All right. I think that's great too. You know, you think about you think about a guy that looks like that. I'm looking at 1986 when I see the Tiger King guy, and but nope, that was 2017. He just is a character like that. But to think that that guy got crazy famous is it's amazing. If you're like, I'm gonna pitch a show about uh, this tiger guy. He's got all the tigers, dresses crazy, sequin jeans, shoots guns all the time, gay as the hills, and he uh, co-ops straight guys to fall in love with them and marry them through crystal meth. What do you think? People be like, that's not a show. Here's the best show ever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you look at what they call reality TV, what used to be in the 80s, you know, Discovery Channel, some of these where you turn it on because you actually wanted to learn. And then now, you know, you've got a dude in in overalls, supposedly as some repo guy running around chasing a guy dressed in a, in a diaper, you know, and people are like, oh, no, this is real. Like, what What the fuck are you talking? It's not right. real. Have you noticed right. how they never get angry? They never throw a punch and you've been watching it for six seasons. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so even our version of reality at the end, like, all right, let me, let me ask you one thing. Why does it say script at the end of each of these shows? That means right. someone wrote shit for them. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a dumbing down of, of, of the, the nation. I think some people, n- not most people, but some people look at this and if they believe the things they see on quote-unquote reality TV, then why would they not believe the same thing? I mean, why is a National Enquirer still being sold? Because people still buy that toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun stories. I think people like to say, can you believe it? But it's like, if you really looked at reality, I mean, and that's because there's lizards and aliens and shit in the National Enquirer. But if you look at like, like the Bill Clinton White House, they had a biographer that was going to write their story, right? Their autobiography, the biography of the Clintons. And uh, that guy became a screenwriter and wrote um, House of Cards. Now, House of Cards is crazy. It's got a guy that's a senator that kills somebody. He becomes the president. Like, it's crazy all the way through it. But when you look at the Epstein stuff and all the other shit surrounding all those crazy billionaires – that would be too crazy. The public wouldn't accept that as a fictionalized account because they say that's not realistic. Pedophilia and shit, private islands, that's crazy. But the reality of it is that, you know, we have to dumb down reality to absorb it as fiction. Yeah. And, and we have companies making billions of dollars on the, the blood of Americans, cigarette companies and, you know, fast food oh, yeah. companies, but no one bats an eyelid to that. Well, you know, you're, you're questioning whether one person was killed by, you know, a larger organization when right in front of your faces, you know, we're losing millions of men and women every day just so someone else can get rich. Well, and that's the thing too, when you talk about that and you talk about the cigarettes or drunk drivings or, you know, any of it, when, whenever they talk about, we're doing this for your safety, America, there would be no cigarettes if that were true, right? There would be no – you, you would have way different kind of laws around shit that only harms people. Like you would have different high fructose corn syrup laws. You would have different laws about diabetes as far as what the, what the people could feed you, you know, what these companies could sell us, what poison we are allotted to. It's an insanity that we're in. And we're in it just because we they've lulled us into a state of uh, complacency through convenience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, getting back to your your journey, so you know, you found you found MMA, um, and uh, I know that uh, 
uh, Diego was on season one of The Ultimate Fighter and Keith made he season was. two. So tell me about your journey kind of through through Jackson's Gym and then um, uh, through to your actual career, including the show. Man, um, yeah, it was, I, I got on, I, I went out for season two, I guess. And then it was, but it was like Rashad and Keith were there also. And um, so then I went to light heavyweight. And um, which was probably a foundational error, but it was where I'd fought before. And, um, so I was comfortable there. And then I got on season three and, um, you know, been in LA, I guess I'd just come off, uh, the longest yard with Adam Sandler is what took me to LA. And, uh, and I was out there and uh, that's when I met Eddie. And so I started training, uh, 10th planet jujitsu, Eddie Bravo just opened his school on Santa Monica at a place called the bomb squad. And he fucking blew my mind with the rubber guard and no gi innovations that he'd done the routes he'd had, um, the kind of ironclad pathways that he'd had. He he was just looking at jujitsu in a way that I'd never heard anybody talk about jujitsu before. And, um, and that was phenomenal experience. And, uh, Fought there at a light heavyweight. Um, I, I was, I guess, three and zero in MMA by the time I got there, and then fought as a uh, in one of the light heavyweight WC championships. A guy named Scott Smith, who he also he fought in the UFC later. Um, he knocked out two of my friends in the same fashion I got knocked out in, but hands of steel they call him, and uh, really great dude, um, great experience, man. Uh, what a phenomenal time that whole time, you know, to talk about fighting just for a couple of minutes. It's so, it's so difficult. All that it encompasses everybody that I met that I've gotten to compete against. Um, the, the kind of unity that, 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 that brings you together in this, this kind of, um, you know, you, you, you kind of set up your own rites of passage or something as a fighter. I think that's what maybe I was looking for. I think that's what a lot of us are looking for. Like, and, and I think it's like maybe a similar thing to guys that join SEAL teams or things like that. It's like people are looking for something more like, like what could I be under those conditions? And, and that's kind of the questions that I got asked. And under, under this kind of pressure, who could I be? Could I maintain, um, you know, an 80% pace for this long uh, under these, con- like all that kind of stuff, you know? Um, it became a fascinating drive for me experience and i just fell in love with every every aspect of it and then you know getting to learn under guys like greg jackson mike winklejohn and um you know is you know brandon gibbs at that time he was uh, you know he's he holds pads for john jones right now um great great kickboxer but uh you know gibson he we, we would just spar together back in the day it was before he was even holding pads so it's it's really cool too to see the whole arc of like the you know, the growth of this sport as it's been from, you know, my, my little experience in it and then to where it's grown now, it's just phenomenal. And to think during all that too, this is the thing that really blows my mind, blows my mind. Fucking Diego Sanchez, the first ultimate fighter, right? Still fighting today. I I don't know if there's another guy that is, I mean, Maybe Alistair Overeem is a guy fighting as long as Diego's been fighting, but Diego's got to be one of the longest running fighters that's still active right now, right? right? Which is phenomenal. Yeah. Now, what's your take on that though? Because you know, as um, as we know, with with boxers, with MMA, with even you know the military, with all the concussion they get from usually the explosions around them, um, you know, TBI concussions can 
can really, you know, take their toll on the brain and there's no way of callousing the brain. Same way as in the gym, you know, now it seems like people are really understanding that we probably shouldn't be, you know, full, full contact sparring every training session. So what's your take on the longevity of a fighter and, and when, not saying specifically Diego, but just in general, when someone should be considering transitioning out of actually competing? It's, it's, it's the hardest conversation because as an athlete, you can't think of that because you don't want that in your head. It's like almost like it's a quit, right? And you, and so you, you push those ideas away. But of course, then at a certain point, you know, those days are coming when you're going to have to transition to something. And what would that be? Because you've given your everything to this for the X amount of years. So it's a tough, it's a tough thing. You know, a lot of guys are setting up into film work. Um, I see a lot of guys that go into their uh, families' businesses or something, stuff like that. You know, there's different guys that set stuff up different ways, podcasts, you know, like, fuck, Shab's killing it. Um, you know, Jay Heron, we talked to yesterday, he's doing great, uh, great stunt man. There's, 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 there's a lot of different um, segues, but the fact is, is that for every one of us, when, when the lights go out, the shade is cold and it draws you back. And then especially with the increasing money, it draws you back. And then we see guys like DJ Penn who are fucking legends, man. That, I mean, that guy, the way he could hold an audience, he walked out once when he was coming back and his intention, he was telling us earlier in a hall, he says, I'm going to take one at lightweight, at welterweight, at middleweight. And then I'm going to go to light heavyweight and heavyweight. I'm going to have a, and, and he was like the champ and you couldn't tell him anything. You know, Diego's got that same way about him, but when he came out and he had a t-shirt on and said, champ is here. And he came out to that song and it's, it's, it's chilling, man. He's one of those guys. He's an icon, but then he took all them fights afterwards and, you know, and, and, and Chuck took a lot of fights after and, and, uh, and Anderson Silva and Leota Machida. And it's like, it, and Shogun, you know, you see these guys and you don't ever want to see your heroes fall, right? And um, you imagine Anderson going out, he'd have been a ghost story, you know, a guy that could move and nobody could touch him. Like, you know, and but the, the drive, the adrenaline to do that thing is so strong inside you that, and, and then with all the other draws, it, it's just tough. And so, um, Everybody's got to make their own choices, you know, and, and I think that we're learning a lot more right now. But what we're also learning and as far as concussions go, you know, I got knocked out on set last year uh, in June. And but but before then, and retrospectively, as I'm getting healthier, I can tell. I could have felt all my other concussions coming up behind me like a cloud. And I remember um talking to Joe and him saying, you know, those concussions, man, they don't even show up really until 10, 20 years later sometimes. And he, he was talking, I think about maybe Joe Namath or something like that, um, who I started following the Joe Namath protocol for hyperbaric chambers for recovery of brain injuries. Um, but that's what Joe Namath had found is that like, you know, 30 years later, he just knew these concussions were coming. He knew he didn't have dementia. And so he started treating how to how to hyper oxygenate his brain and how can I heal my brain? <clears throat> well, when I got knocked out last year, I went into such a uh, a dark spot 
and they called post-concussive syndrome. I, I couldn't be near any light or any sounds or, uh, it was grim for a while, whatever, but, um, I kept trying to push into it. I, you know, cause you got to live, you got to work too. And, and I, I'm trying, you know, it's just, it's been a road anyway since then. But my, my point is, is that the amount of ground that we've gained, um, in, in this field of, of brain health and the amount of ground that's being gained every day is so encouraging. Uh, because part of the thing is, is when you hurt yourself, you, you become, you become a stranger to yourself to some degree. And, uh, and that's terrifying, you know? And, and so to get hope, to have hope that you may get back and, and become whole again, not the same as you were. You'll never be. We're all walking through the river and the river's changing and we're changing with every step. But to become whole again, you know, and and uh, and thank God that, you know, we live in a, in, a, in a place where we can explore these things, too. You know, where we have this safety. It's like, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been quite a ride for me this year. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. So I've had it from two perspectives. I I trained a lot of uh, Muay Thai when I was younger, trained at the shoot box when they were in L.A. for a very short time and Melrose, yep. I think it was. Um, which was Fight Club. Like I had the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> I'm not a good fighter, especially not back then. So you know, I was a, a punching bag for a lot of good people. But you know, that was when the you know perforated eardrums and the headaches and the broken noses and you know all that stuff. But then, as a fireman as well, this, what mirrors TBI is also sleep deprivation, the damage from that. So Correct. even if you know you're not actually getting hit in the head every day as a as a first responder 10 20 years into your career you start to get the same kind of thing and that's why we see i think a lot of the mental health issues in in you know my professions so you know you get that that disassociation you get that brain fog you get that you know the the obtrusive thoughts so that when you have two together you know then you have that perfect storm so you know it i think it's a, it's a huge issue that we do need to address in in my profession and in yours yeah. I mean, everywhere, you know, when I started going through the healing for this, I knew 100% that, oh, it's because, you know, I, I got to see a, a friend of mine, um, did a lot of time in Afghanistan and a little in Iraq and, and, um, had helmet cam videos that I saw, uh, of him deployed. He's a, a team guy. And, you know, you see some of these explosions in these big, huge metal trucks, and it just tilts the truck. Oh, it, like everybody that's over there, they're in crazy explosions all the time. Whether it's uh, it went off nearby them, a, a rocket zipped by them and landed six feet in front of my friend's feet, and it, I mean, it twists your mind. It breaks it in half, like those kinds of things. And so when they come back and kill themselves at a, at, a, at one a day or whatever. That, that's totally, I, I just feel like it has to be, be that it has like, and these brain injuries that are, um, unacknowledged that we don't acknowledge, right. Cause it, it's hard to acknowledge. Cause it seems like a brain injury comes out as a, as a twist in your character, as a twist in the way you behave a little bit, it comes out in funny ways. And this is the unbecoming of yourself. And, and then you add in, if you have sleep problems and things like that, oh, and then 
you know, sometimes they tell me when you get blown up or you get a bad head injury, you can get diabetes from that. It'll fuck your whole hormonal schedule up. And so now you've got all these kind of endocrine issues and, and um, hormonal issues in your body that you might not even know about. I mean, uh, my friend, Dr. Kirk Parsley, he was a SEAL and then he became a doctor for SEALs. And he made a product called the Sleep Remedy because he was noticing all these guys that were coming back that were these badasses from combat that were talking about um, all these issues they had and he'd test them and their hormones were all fucked up, but he wasn't a hormone doctor. So he, the Navy wouldn't let him address that. But what he saw is that they were all on, um, Ambien and he goes, and all I knew was that they didn't have an Ambien deficiency. And so I started looking there and I started going into all these different herbs and, um, GABA and all types of shit to make a cocktail to get these guys back to sleep on a regular schedule. Because if you're not on a regular sleep schedule, you can never heal from a brain injury because the number one time the brain injury heals is when you're in deep REM sleep. And if you're not getting the opportunity to do that, you could stay stuck for a while. And so that was his first, how, how can I get these guys better was the whole window was through sleep, which is interesting you bring up. No, it is. It was funny you say that because I had Kirk on four times now. For the, oh, shit. For that very reason, because I listened <laughs> to him. I think it was uh, Barbell Shrug that I heard him the first time and I'm driving down to work and I'm like, Holy shit, this is exactly one of the reasons why we're getting so many deaths. Because in, in the fire service and police, it's everything. It's not, you know, you always hear, oh, firefighters get cancer because of the because of the smoke. And it's not. They die of everything. And the thing is, oh, the right. body is destroyed by the lack of sleep. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I take Kirk's sleep supplement to this day. Not every day. I try not to do it all the time. But it is such yeah, a great reset. I want it to be good when I need it. But, uh, yeah, same. Brilliant. All right. Well, then um, you mentioned about Kirk. I know you had him. You had Logan uh, Gelbrick I've had on. So on on uh, Pirate Life Radio. So tell me about what made you start podcasting. To start it? Yeah. Yeah. Because well, you got in uh, way earlier than I did. So I first got in, I guess, um, because, of, because of Joe, I suppose, uh, just being on his show and, and him going, you know, you've got a perspective that be valuable for people in the middle of bumfuck nowhere to get. I mean, and what I think what Joe was talking about really is he's starting a media revolution in a way. Like he's wanting all of us, uh, all the, you know, the Andy Stumps and Jocko Willinks and, and, and uh, everybody to start a podcast because these are good, strong men with good values and morals that are out there, uh, showing how to be better and how to get around obstacles they've gotten around and, and all that. And, and that's the best media you can have out there. So anyway, I, I think he kind of, I think that's maybe what the goal was for him. Um, you know, cause he does want to spread goodness, man. And, uh, so that's kind of what got me into it. And, and then what kept me at it was I was so excited cause I'd have these conversations with people. Like when I stopped training with Greg, you know, I wouldn't see Greg again, but he's a guy that meant a ton to me. And so to sit down with him for two or three hours and chat, holy shit, man, that, you know, and, and so I just got real grateful for the conversations, you know, and kind of for the reason, you know, that we started talking about at the beginning of this. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you, you, you get to be a student and you get to learn from your mentors. And it's, it's amazing just to ask a question, especially if it's off what you're there known for so you know you start talking to greg about philosophy or you know some of these or areas math. yeah yeah i mean <laughs> oh. my god you know it's, it's it's fascinating just to ask a question and then shut the hell up and let them talk yeah he's a he is a genius 
And then, you know, a guy that I admire like that to get to hear about who his geniuses are, right? Because everybody's got the guy they're following. We're in a chain here, you know, we're all together. And so it's cool to see that, oh yeah, all my heroes got guys that built them too. They're on the shoulders of great men also. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's it, that that desire to get better. And I love, I tell people that podcasting is the most selfish thing I do because I get to ask the questions that I want to ask. And now the beautiful thing is we can record it and then share it with everyone else on planet Earth too. So we all get to learn. But mm-hmm. to to pick the brains of some of the men and women that you admire most on planet Earth is is a phenomenal experience. Yeah, it's pretty special, man. And the way we can do it now is, it's, I mean, more than ever, there's less obstacles into people creating the content and expressing it in the way they'd like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then transitioning to stunts, um, that was something I, I was told, very long story short, I couldn't be a fireman because I was colorblind. So I found myself in the martial arts. And it's funny you say with the the spinny flippy stuff because taekwondo served me very well as a stuntman so i did live mainly live stunt shows um and i'm actually just about to go back in to open the um the born stunt show they're opening in orlando um wow but uh but a lot of our mutual friends have have uh you know we share mutual friends should i say so steve dunleavy who you know did um john wick with and jumanji i believe yeah um yeah. we were original cast in universal in japan and then um uh eric salas and you know so many of these people of course so so how did you get into the stunt world well i didn't know i was um the first time i i got a sag card the first time i got introduced to a movie i was i was running security at a nightclub and um these three black guys come in and go hey uh we need to get a bunch of big white boys for this film we're doing out at the prison. And Santa Fe's got a prison that's a defunct prison because they had huge riots there in the 80s. And Well, in I think it was in 1980 or 81. Uh, a lot of people died, and then they shut the prison down and it's all that. But So they filmed there now in this eerie-ass place, which is fucking also very cool. You get to walk. I mean, it's, it's wild. The whole place is. So that was where I got a sad card. And I did – it was a Master P movie called Lockdown. And Master P did a lot of movies at that time. He uh, had No Limit Records, and then he did No Limit Films. And he, you know, he's a dude out of Louisiana, built an empire for himself, and um, and helped all his friends do it along the way. And so I'm in this movie that's, you know, what he, what what there wasn't. I don't know. I was going to say what there wasn't there in quality. He did in quantity. He did a whole ton of movies. Uh, but it was fun, man. And so I'm in this prison film. I'm uh, got this character role. And then get to do a few stunts, a few fights, say a few lines, um, you know. And then I talked to this guy, Keith Ballard, and Keith is the stunt coordinator on it. And he's an ex-Navy SEAL also. And he goes, uh, he goes, dude, you come, just come stay out at my place, dude, after, after the month was over, you know. He goes, just uh, I got an extra place, and uh, there's a lot of work out there, dude. You could kill it right now uh, if you want to get, you know, just start working stunts. And I didn't really know what that meant. But all I knew was like, I didn't have opportunities like that where I grew up and uh, to move to LA, like I'm a Michigan kid that's like, I'm going to move to LA and do that seems unreasonable. I got to work this one job right now, which is great. Uh, and then I can train all the time I want. I'm doing this wrestling. I'll just do that. But thanks, man. Cool to meet you. And um, never saw him again. And then fast forward like nine years, guy walks into my gym 
and um, wants to do jujitsu and stuff. And he's going to be here for a month or something. That guy's name is Darren Prescott. And we roll a bunch all the time. And, and um, he goes, and then, I, I don't know, after a week or something, I find out what he's here for. You know, he's uh, doing a film and he's the second unit director and a stunt coordinator. And it's a film called Paul. And he goes, oh, you want to come be on it? Maybe play a soldier or something or we'll do a bar fight. Um, get you a couple weeks of work on it. I was like, that would be fucking awesome. And so I, I did that. And I was really looking – Cause I was looking for a way I was, I had had my last fight and I was like, what am I, what am I going to do, man? I'm doing bodyguard work, which is like, you're living somebody else's life. There's no future in that. Like, so I was just at this place, you know, of, of emptiness again, of like when I was done fighting, I'm going, who are you now? And what, and, and, uh, if you're not this, then, then what? And, and that whole thing about, you know, without that, without money in your pocket, without the people, you know, with, who are you inside, you know? And it's like one of those kind of leveling moments like that for me. And, um, and where do you want to go? And I, and I looked at this and I thought, well, I'll keep doing everything I'm doing and I'm going to try, try to go, go at this route a little bit. And I did, and I ran after it hard and I spent money I didn't have to go meet people that I didn't know, um, just to get in front of them and shit like that. And, uh, one thing led to another, Darren called me to do a red dawn job and I met another guy on that. And then he called me, you know, months later, these are months in between, you know, you, you get paid good on the day, but fuck, if you don't work a lot, you can't make a living doing films. And so, you know, that was in that struggle. And so I'm taking bodyguard jobs now and then I'm still trying to run my gym, but I'm paying money into the gym because nobody wants to pay for jujitsu. And I think everybody should have jujitsu. So I'm just giving jujitsu, you know, I'm an idiot and, uh, whatever. And so that's kind of my life. And, um, I'm in Santa Fe and I get a call on a Monday and he goes, um, hey man, it's Chris, uh, from, uh, Red Dawn, which I'd worked on, I don't know, as a year earlier, maybe. And, um, he goes, can you be in downtown LA at this address to have a look-see for a director tomorrow? And I go, sure. It's tomorrow at five o'clock. Okay. And I'm in Santa Fe, right? And so I just got a thousand dollars for a bodyguard job. I did go fucking buy a ticket for 300 bucks and rent a car and <laughs> go to LA. And, uh, and I go and I get the job and it's for Jonah Hex and I, I get to be in LA for a couple of weeks and, um, make some money and do this job. And that was when I first started eating paleo too, cause I was trying to get off. I had acid reflux so badly and, and there's scar in my esophagus and all that. Anyway, yeah, that's where I found out that paleo really worked cause I forgot my Nexium at home and I was gone two weeks and I was like, I hadn't had that at all, but I've been eating real strict paleo. Anyway, uh, the overlaps in my life. Um, so that, then I do this John, this Jonah Hex job and, and kind of an, more of an acting job, I guess, uh, than anything else. And then, um, I just went from there and I'd go and I'd hustle guys and I'd meet guys and guys start talking and go, Oh, and guys would give, put my name to other guys and just been fortunate, dude, blessed by the community, by the people that are in it. You know, there's a kindness there and, and uh, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing to be around so many fucking capable people when you're around a stunt community. It's like, who's more, who's more holistically capable than the stunt team anywhere? Like, God damn, what a privilege to be around those guys. And that's just, you know, I always felt like it was an honor to be able to be there, to be able to be called a stunt man. Like fucking, I take a lot of pride in it, you know? And so anyway, I just went, I just kept going. But the, the story I want to get to is that first guy, Keith Willard, I get called, but another guy put my name in. He was making fun of me because I gave him a headshot that was like a 
a real paper headshot. It was back just before emails were getting totally turned over and there was no paper. So he had a picture of me with a suit and tie on and he laughed. He called me. He says, listen, dickhead, um, just go ahead and send me the wife beater one or no shirt. Or what? I'm never hiring you to be the <laughs> lawyer. Okay. It's not you. And so when I, when I, I, so I get this job for the equalizer. And I, and I go and I look on the wall at the wardrobe and it's that fucking picture. And I was like, fuck. So that's, that's the only way I know that Chris recommended me for that job also was because, you know, it's like, so anyway, these guys are all connected. And then that night later or two nights later, I guess, uh, Keith Willard, he takes us out for dinner. We'll go to a little bar and have a burger. And I go, you know, he goes, so how'd you get in the business? And I go, well, that's a funny story. I was working at this bar in Santa Fe, blah, 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 blah. And this movie, and he's like, wait, I was the guy that, he's like, because he tapped heart lead me in. And I go, yeah. That, he's like, holy shit. Anyway, that was uh, kind of a full circle story, but Keith and I are friends today still for a long time. That's amazing. Yeah, the, the stunt community has always been, uh, you know, fantastic. The one element I didn't like, why I didn't go into pursuing it as a full-time career was the whole hustling on set. Part. Yeah, but once you are, you know, once you are known, once people know who you are, um, you know, and I, I'm not the kind of person where people call me, but I know a lot of my friends are. When you get past that initial hustle element, I mean, yeah, if you're trusted and you're a great swordsman or motorcycle rider or you know, faller, whatever it is, um, yeah, that's that's a that's a group of incredibly professional men and women. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a, I mean, you know, and then what's cool is that there's a lot of beautiful athletes in the stunt world um, that, you know, you age out of your efficacy or your ability to compete at super high levels in a lot of sports, you know? Um, and so a lot of the trickers and everything, they're 22 and they go, they segue beautifully right into stunts, you know, cause fuck, they move beautifully and they're fearless and they understand angles in a different way. And also they have a great acumen at filming and at editing, which puts you worlds ahead. If you, you, I mean, that's already your passion. Come on. Yeah. Now you mentioned about getting hit on set. I had, um, Olivia Jackson on the show who we talked before we started recording, lost her arm on Resident Evil because of a horrendous, you know, mistake by a boom operator. Um, is this the mistake as, as you understand it? And I'm, cause it's the story I tell is that this woman, they're set to go at a certain mile per hour and they're going and she's driving at a car that's driving at her. There's a boom that's right in front of her face and it pulls up at the last second. She goes zooming by and that's the shot, right? Except then they go, we want it a little faster. They adjust the speed on the camera car, but not her or something like that. And the boom doesn't come up. The timing's off and it catches her in the face and in the side of the body. Is that right? Yeah. I don't even know if it was even, um, the a change in speed i know they were initially supposed to be shooting a different scene it had been raining um so they asked to shoot that one instead but the person who was supposed to raise the the boom just didn't and she slammed straight into it at, you know whatever i think it was the same speed that they were they were doing regardless but wow. that the yeah. opposing force i mean almost killed her but it's such a you know a, a sad story but she's such an amazing amazing human being and then, and then what was it their 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 insurance covered to like thirty thousand dollars or something yeah exactly uh, and and then and then after they'd all said oh we'll cover it we'll cover it we'll cover it but then they're like well that would be like an admission of guilt and their lawyers advise them against it so then nobody covers it and this girl is just not only not only augmented from a traumatic brain injury disfigured facially 
disfigured physically, you know, I mean, to have an arm ripped off, Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. And like no culpability. It's insane, man. It is. Well, what was crazy about the story is it tore, completely tore all the nerves, you know, in her neck and, and then down on the, 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 the ones that went to her arm. So her arm basically became a hanging piece of meat. And right. so she had her arm in place at, you know, initially, but she opted to get it removed because it was like that. It was like having a giant sausage just hanging off the side of your shoulder. So to, to make the decision that your life would be better if you cut your own arm off. I mean, that's how injured she yep. was, you know, but she's now doing martial arts and she's riding horses and, and, you know, getting herself back. But there's no, you know, no getting away from the fact that they, they changed her life forever. So absolutely there needs to be, you know, um, responsibility. I mean, we all know, we all, we all know there's a huge risk. But God damn it, there's a lot of money there and we could take care of our people. You know, that's the bottom line. It's the same thing with equality everywhere. It's like this is a classism equality a, a we're talking about right now. And stump people are in a lower class than the producers. And and they're showing us that. It's clear, right? That and and so we're we're not even measured. And and that's that's what I look to now. It's I mean, I feel more and more that if you don't make your own content, if you're not in in the creation, um, you're a cog in the wheel. That it's who cares when you're used up. Let's go. Yeah. And and uh, so if you want, if I want more for Tate, like I've got to be more than what what they'll give me. Absolutely, and we're seeing it even in in my professions as well. You know, the first responder professions. I've got two police officers now. I've recorded that are about to go out that were shot in the line of duty wearing the uniform. And still were discarded by their departments. I've had firefighters that have got cancer in a state that has cancer presumption laws who the insurance companies basically stole till, till they passed away. You know what I mean? So oh. it's, it's, it's happening in our profession as well. To see this, the two professions that I love side by side, both suffering from the same thing is, is awful. And it's another thing tying back to our original conversation. And, and that's what, that's what makes me so scared about this. And it was my, you know, when people are scared about getting the flu or whatever, when we see that it's like, you know, wasn't that big a deal or, or we took care of it really good. However you want to look at it, whatever. But like the idea that you're going to erase, erase a whole, a whole class of people, which is the middle class, um, by not allowing any of us to work or make money. Like, like this is a, crazy time we're in and so and that, and now it's just gotten even wackier but it seems like the same thing how do we drive people apart uh and we're gonna have very elite and and everybody else is what yeah absolutely well i want to get to to your your writing with keith but just one more thing i want to touch on but because i just watched it and it was amazing so waco so yeah so well done taylor show huh yeah taylor kish was a, a was absolutely phenomenal the whole cast was but what just tell me about your experience shooting that well, that was a, you know, a really beautiful time. It was, um, it was cool to be able to do that because I was super interested as Waco happened, living through it and seeing that unfold. Like that was crazy TV in the nineties. We had Waco, we had Ruby Ridge, we had Oklahoma city. Uh, we had OJ. <laughs> I mean, we had a lot of crazy, uh, news programming that started happening then. Um, but my experience on the show it was a real privilege to be able to get on it. Um, the directors, writers are um, a couple of brothers, really beautiful dudes. And um, 
and to be able to see their creation and, and, and go through it and to see their, you know, this is a, there's a lot of questions about this case, but, um, their adherence to not try to push a narrative, but to try to bring the truth and to bring all the different aspects to that story and, and get a well-rounded idea of it. Uh, I thought they did a fantastic job. Um, and during that time also is, it was filmed in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, uh, I, I got to, um, be home for the filming of that, which was great. And I met a guy that, uh, became one of my best friends during that time who was in an old folks home. And another friend of mine was like, Hey, I'm leaving town. And Harrison just got put in this old folks home. And he was like 92. Um, cause he had a, a heart thing, but will you visit him? And I was like, I'm never going to find the time to visit him, but I'll see whatever. And then I went there and then I just had to see him every day, you know? And, um, and we became great friends until he died last year. But uh, that, that was all during the filming of that. So it's, uh, it, it, it marks a real special time in my life in that way too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that's being done very well. Some of these Netflix specials and Amazon, some of these other ones that are either docu-series, you know, um, dramatization of true events or documentaries, just like podcasts. Again, you have to be selective. You have to question everything. But I think there's some great information being put out there and, and some great perspectives, you know, and, and Waco wasn't black and white. You know, it wasn't all one side's fault, but there were errors made on both sides. And that middle narrative, just like we spoke earlier, um, I think was told very well in that, you know, that there were some egos that contributed to from both sides that contributed to the death of all those men, women and children. Crazy, huh? And then everybody going, we don't know really who started that or what all that stuff is like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a trip, you know, it's like the, the lack of acknowledgement of like the lack of ownership. People know who started that, you know? Um, but until we take responsibility for our lives, how do we ever evolve? Right. This this whole thing about like, Oh, I hope I don't get caught. No, man, the universe knows already. We, we all got to cop to our shit and we all got to be responsible to that. You know? Absolutely. All right. Well, then touching on, um, on the stunt world, as you said, it's, yeah. it's very important to, you know, to, to, to have the next step. I mean, a lot of the stunt women and men that we work alongside that are older. I mean, you, you see, there's only a certain time, certain amount of time you can throw yourself off a building before you got to find another path. Correct. So, so tell me about your road now with Keith Jardine to, to writing and, and movie making. Oh, uh, well, um, I, you know, we've just kind of been partners along this whole road and, and, uh, maybe about a year ago, Keith sent me something and I was like, this is fucking great. And then he, and then again, started working on it. So he kind of fell in love with writing right away. And he's written a couple of great pieces, one, uh, episodic and another, um, uh, full, full length Western. And then learning that, you know, how to produce and how to, maybe get into the writer's guild perhaps. And so there's all these new things that are right on the horizon here that, um, that we're up to and we'll just see where, where, what goes, you know? Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'm excited to see where that, that goes and, uh, you know, see all the other projects that you're working on. And I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I love to ask is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, well, it depends on the context, I guess, but like I, I really like, uh, a book called The Alchemist, I think is a really, it's a, it's a book of opening my awareness, I guess. And, um, 
and really uh, striving. I, I like that a lot. I also, uh, there's a great book called The Spirituality of Imperfection, which um, is, it weaves a lot of old storytelling in and, and talking about healing from that aspect culturally uh, and, and from different cultures' perspectives. But this idea of storytelling, of how, how we, we, we become better with the interaction, with the conversation, just like what we've been talking about. But I, I like those two a lot, yeah. Brilliant. All right, what about a movie or movies? A movie, you, well, everybody has to see The Godfather if you haven't. Um, I'm always appalled when that's left off the list. People uh, miss it often. Uh, the Matrix we got to see. What else? Um, you don't want to watch uh, Mr. Robot right now. It's way too real. Uh <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think that, I think like the classics, right? I think Godfather matrix is for sure. Classics tombstone. Um, I love the long riders to me. It's my number one cowboy film. A lot of people laugh at me for that, but it's, uh, you got the Carradine brother. It's really great. It's stack cast, really great slow motion effects. Um, long riders, check it out. It's funny you mentioned Carradine. That's one of the the kind of I guess racist stories of Hollywood that uh, a lot of people don't know about is in the the uh, show Kung Fu where David Carradine he he, he wasn't Kai Chen Check <laughs> <laughs> yeah the Bruce Lee was turned down for that role because he was too Asian. Well, I think that he he more than that. I think it was his shit. I think he might have still had writing credit on that. If I'm I don't know. Something like that. But yeah, they put a white guy in the role that was Bruce Lee's role. Yeah, gave him mascara. <laughs> Crazy, huh? It is. Never thought about that as a kid. You know, when I look at about that, when you think about stuff like that, you never think about that as a kid. No, it's a Chinese character. The character we wrote, it's a Chinese guy. But this white guy is going to play it. Well, if, if, that's not, if that's not a leftover of that streak of white supremacy that I was talking about earlier – well, well, come on. <laughs> you can't have Jerry Lewis putting on teeth like that and pretending to be Chinese like, and tell me that that's not, like just the permissiveness of it, that it's permissible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look at even the, the Westerns. How many of the quote-unquote Red Indians were all white guys with <laughs> the, all of it. basically all of it. red face? <laughs> so, yeah, it's crazy. Um, all right, well, what about documentaries? Any documentaries that you love? Yeah, you should watch uh, The 13th. I've watched it multiple times. Amazing. I think then the next one that I really loved that hit me lately was uh, Not Your Negro. And it's um, a James Baldwin story. I am literally in the middle of that right now. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, fascinating, yeah. right? Okay, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, and uh, it wasn't Emmett Till, but it was uh, – his third friend, um, who I'm blanking on his name right now. No, but that was amazing. I think his, uh, you know, his wisdom right now is so, so powerful and so important. You know, is that again that common sense middle ground about humanism versus a particular race? It's an interesting thing, you know, when I look at a guy like James Baldwin or something like that, or or a Hank Aaron, or um, you know, when when you look at Jackie Robinson, when when you look at. Uh, uh, and Jesse Owens, so, you know, in any of these guys that you look at through history, um, anybody's name that you know, Harriet Tubman, who, everybody, if you're black, regardless of your job, you must be an activist, right? It, it's that close. The pain of it uh, and then the, the frequency is that close. 
and and that and that's the difference is that white people get to participate no matter what and and, and if you're black you have to fight for the participation and I think that's that's the that's the difference. I think people, you know, it's like these things where I, I started, you know, getting offered like, well, look at it like this, Tate. And I start looking at it like that. And and it's a different perspective, man, is that you must be uh, an, an activist if you're a black person, if you're a person of color, because there is a construct that's set up against you. And and it, it's not the same construct that it is for me being white. I just I can see it everywhere anyway. I hope everybody uh, isn't bored with all that talk, but I, I just I, I urge everybody to open your eyes to a new perspective. We're all shooting from a different position, and it's pretty important if we know why you're shooting from that position before I, I chastise you about it. Yeah, well, we were talking before we started recording. I want to make sure that we go over it again. That with the whole phrase "white privilege," you'd mentioned that, and 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 my perspective is as we discussed before, like. It's human privilege. If you're anywhere where you are in a good place today, then you owe it to the rest of the world to try and make that, that a little better, to try and lift the fallen. So, you know, it, white, Chinese, you know, whatever. If you are privileged, if you wake up today and there's a roof over your head and food in your stomach and your family are all well, then open your door and find a way to make the world a little bit better, whether it's racially, whether it's, you know, mental health. But, but I think that there is a privilege. A privilege is you woke up and your life is, not shit. So start from there. Well, and, and for sure that's part of it, but I can easily go a step further with a question and say, what, what are the things if it's, if it's now 11 or so at night, I'm done having dinner and, um, I'm going to stay, but my sister's going to go walk to her car. What does she have to consider? What does all that mean for her to go into the dark night, into a dark parking lot down the street somewhere and get in her car. So she has to consider certain things before she makes that action, right? I, I then, if it's me that's going to leave early and I leave, I don't have to consider shit. I have none of those considerations. I'm not scared somebody's going to come pick on me or that I'm not going to make it to my car or, or that I'm going to get stopped by somebody and they're going to, um, you know, Tell me, hey, we need to look in your pockets real quick. You look like somebody that robbed the store down the street. That shit's not happening to me, man. That's that that's the privilege. You know, that I'm I'm born stronger for whatever reasons, part of that cultural strongness. I mean, there's a strength in in, in that being white and it and it ain't it's it's not correct. And, and but then my strengths that I do have dominion over, you know, I've always wanted to use my strengths to help those that didn't have some and 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 I can be as grateful as I am in my life that I can that I can see where there's the inequities um, because it's important. And if it's not important for you today, it's going to come up in life. It'll be important. You know that we all have equity is important. If there's not justice everywhere, our life is diminished. Yeah, I think the only time there needs to be inactivity is if you open your door and the world is perfect. It's a Disney movie, and bluebirds are singing to you, you know, but. The reality is, if it's not perfect, then find a way to improve it a little bit. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one more quick question: Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions? You should. Uh, I don't know. Tim Kennedy always comes to mind. Um, you know. Yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, there's so much going on right now. To, like any conversation you'd like, but you've I, all all my bangers. You've already had Scott McGee. Have you talked to Scott McGee? Uh, he's coming on soon. Tim's actually been on three times now, I think. But Scott, oh good, Scott is. Uh, we've been talking for a long time, but uh, we're just just trying to find a day now. But yeah, tell him to quit fucking about. Yeah, I will. I'll tell him you said so. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, man. All right. Well, Tay, just, just so people can uh, can reach out to you, where, where's the best place to find you online or on social media? Just at, at Tate Fletcher doc, or at Tate Fletcher at uh, Instagram, um, at CavemanCoffee.com. And uh, that's it. Yeah, I'm easy to find, man. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank cool. you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Right on. Thanks a lot, James. Talk soon.